Welcome to a brand new edition of The S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. In the S and S Factor stands for science. So if you love science and technology, welcome aboard. You've come to the right place on your radio dial or in your podcast service. So step aboard my starship. We're going to travel around the solar system, heading to interstellar space a little bit, talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. It's always a pleasure to be here on this great radio station, cruising 92.1 WVLT. There has been so much news in the world of science. Let's get right down to it. Following news bits from phys.org, medieval friars were riddled with parasites, study finds. A new analysis of remains from medieval Cambridge shows that local Augustian friars were almost twice as likely as the city's general population to be infected with intestinal parasites. This is despite most Augustian monasteries of the period having latrine blocks and hand-washing facilities, unlike the houses of ordinary working people. Researchers from the University of Cambridge's Department of Archaeology say the difference in parasitic infection may come down to monks manuring crops in friary gardens with their own feces or purchasing fertilizer containing human or pig excrement. The study, published today in the International Journal of Paleopathology, is the first to compare parasite prevalence in people from the same medieval community who are living different lifestyles and so might have deferred in their infection risk. The population of medieval Cambridge consisted of residents of monasteries, friaries, and nunneries of various major Christian orders, along with merchants, traders, craftsmen, laborers, farmers, and staff and students at the early university. Cambridge archaeologists investigated samples of soil taken from around the pelvises of adult remains from the former cemetery of All Saints by the Castle Parish Church, as well as from the grounds where the city's Augustarian friary once stood. Most of the parish church burials date from the 12th to 14th century, and those interned within were primary of lower social economic status, mainly agricultural workers. The Augustian friar in Cambridge was an international study house known as the Stadium General, where clergy from across Britain and Europe would come to read manuscripts. It was founded in the 1280s and lasted until 1538 before suffering the fate of most English monasteries, closed or destroyed as part of Henry VIII's break with the Roman Church. The researchers tested 19 months from the friary grounds and 25 locals from All Saints Cemetery and found that 11 of the friars, 50%, were infected by worms compared with just eight of the general townspeople, which was 32%. They say these rates are likely the minimum and that actual numbers of infections could could have been higher, but some traces of worm eggs in the pelvic sediment would have been destroyed over time by fungi and insects. The 32% prevalence of parasites among townspeople is in line with studies of medieval burials in European countries suggesting this is not particularly low, but rather the infection rates in a monastery were remarkably high. The friars of medieval Cambridge appear to have been riddled with parasites, said study lead author Dr. Piers Mitchell from Cambridge's Department of Archaeology. This is the first time anyone has attempted to work out how common parasites were in people following different lifestyles in the same medieval town. Cambridge researcher Tiani Wang, who did the microscopy to spot the parasite eggs, said roundworm was the most common infection, but we found evidence for whipworm infection as well. 
These are both spread by poor sanitation. Standard sanitation in medieval towns relied on the cesspool toilet. Oh, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Which were holes in the ground used for feces and household waste. In monasteries, however, running water systems were a common feature, including to rinse out the latrine. As roundworm and whipworms spread by poor sanitation, researchers argue that the difference in infection rates between the friars and the general population must have been due to how each group dealt with their human waste. One possibility is that the friars manured their vegetable gardens with human feces. Not unusual in a medieval period, and this may have led to repeated infection with the worms, said Mitchell. In modern times, we use animal manure, you know, in our fertilizer. Using the human feces in fertilizer, not a good idea. Now let's talk about some environmental news. Scientists found the Achilles heel that could destroy forever chemicals for good. This by Popular Mechanics. For over a century, our world has been made of plastic. It's in everything from firefighting foam to water bottles to nonstick pans yielding convenient products that last. But in the long run, plastic releases hazardous chemicals, PFAS, that seep into the soil and groundwater. These forever chemicals are everywhere today in our drinking supplies, our food, the air, and even our bodies, where they could lead to unwelcome consequences, including cancer, infant development problems, and weakened immunity. Scientists have been working on ways to destroy PFAS chemicals that permeate our environment, but no easy method exists. That's because these standoffish compounds don't react to anything, not biological or other chemical agents. They, they stick only to each other and resist being torn apart. Current methods require very harsh conditions to decompose these compounds, according to chemists at Northwestern University in Evanstown, Illinois. Until now, how to break those PFAS bonds has been unclear. Now, the team's recent work, published in the journal Science on August 18th, proves that the stubborn power of PFAS bonds can, in fact, be broken. The scientists discovered a way to disintegrate two concentrated toxic forms of PFAS into smaller innocuous compounds that decompose. Using low heat, a solvent, and sodium hydroxide, the method is both simple and inexpensive. It works for two major categories of PFAS permeating the environment today. Now, the traditional difficulty in destroying these compounds lies in its many carbon-fluorine bonds, which organic chemists know as the strongest bonds. They require immense heat, about 400 degrees Celsius, and pressure to break, which can lead to cases of air contamination during incineration. William Ditchell, the lead author of the new study, explains in a news release. In New York State, a plant claiming to incinerate PFAS was found to be releasing some of these compounds into the air. The compounds were emitted from the smokestacks and into the local community, and burying PFAS just causes them to contaminate the environment after a few decades, he adds. Now, not all PFAS break down into microplastics, but some, like polyvinyl fluoride, do. Now, it turns out that the PFAS chemicals have a weak spot. They often include charged oxygen atoms at one end of their molecules. Now, Ditchell's team took an uncommon solvent, which allowed them to heat the PFAS gently between 80 and 100 degrees Celsius, a typical reagent that helps cause a chemical reaction. Now, the result was a flurry of reactions, starting with the charged oxygen atoms falling off. Then fluorine atoms fell off as well, abandoning their carbon companions to form fluoride, a safe form of fluoride. 
The whole process took only 12 hours, by which time more than 90% of the PFAS chemicals were converted into safe carbon byproducts. The shell called the group of charged atoms, the PFAS molecules, Achilles heel in a release. Now think about how important this research is. What we're talking about here is more along the lines of polluting the ocean, the animals eating microplastics, getting into their body. We consume the fish that have the microplastics in them, and we end up having microplastics in us. As a matter of fact, not too many shows ago, I talked about microplastics being in our blood. If you want to check that out, go to scienceanimated.net and, and click on the S-Factor tab for all the past shows there or your favorite podcasting service. Microplastics are a real thing, and we're doing everything we can to, to back off of that and for good reason. So if we can find a, a way to break down these forever chemicals, as they call them, it's going to be a great thing for the environment, especially the ocean, where a lot of this plastic ends up. This next story I have talked about before on the S-Factor here, and it is a very important one. You know, our government here in the U.S. spends a whole lot of money every year on all sorts of things. But it seems like they turn a blind eye to a very important event that hopefully does not happen. It seems like that's what we're running on is hope. And that is Earth getting hit by a coronal mass ejection from the sun. Supercharged particles during these solar flares when the sun has its little burps. And which happens, we, you know, we have been monitoring the sun. There are sun cycles that we know about, but our records only go back so far. So the following is from Live Science. Could a, could a solar storm ever destroy Earth? All life on Earth owes its existence to the sun's radiant heat. But what happens when the radiation surges out of control and billions of tons of charged solar material suddenly barrel our way at thousands of miles a second? What happens when Earth takes a direct hit from a solar flare? And could a strong enough one ever destroy life on our planet as we know it? The answers are complicated, but most scientists agree on one thing. Earth's magnetic field and insulating atmosphere keeps us extremely well protected from even the most powerful solar outbursts. While solar storms can tamper with radar and radio systems or knock satellites offline, the most harmful radiation is soaked up in the sky long before it touches human skin. We live on a planet with a very thick atmosphere that stops all of the harmful radiation that is produced in a solar flare, said Alex Young, Associate Director for Science in the Heliophysics Science Division at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Even in the largest events that we've seen in the past 10,000 years, we see the effect is not enough to damage the atmosphere such that we are no longer protected. Still, not all solar flares are harmless. While Earth's magnetic field pre prevents widespread death from solar radiation, the sheer electromagnetic power of a flare could disrupt power grids, internet connections, and other communication devices on Earth, resulting in chaos and potentially even death. Space weather experts at NASA and other agencies take this threat seriously and closely monitor the sun for potentially hazardous activity. Now, that's why I say we have to harden our electrical grid. It is so important. I mean, can you imagine everyone in the U.S. suddenly not having electricity for maybe 7 to 10 years? I've read that that's how long it could take to get electricity back. So you cannot run a modern civilization like that. So I've said on the show before to contact your senators, your congresspeople, if you're from New Jersey listening to me here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT or listening to the podcast near anywhere in the country, send a quick email to your representatives in your state. Set some money aside for hardening our electrical grid, our satellites. I mean, GPS runs off that. We are so entangled with electronics that it is very important to get this system hardened. 
Now let's just do a quick rundown on what solar flares are. Now they occur when the sun's magnetic field lines become taut and twisted, causing enormous planet-sized storms of electromagnetic energy to form on the sun's surface. We can see these storms as cold, dark blotches known as sunspots, and around sunspots, huge tendrils of magnetic field lines twist, spool, and sometimes snap, creating powerful flashes of energy or solar flares. Most energy from a solar flare is, is radiated away as ultraviolet and X-ray light. However, the intense energy of a flare can also heat up nearby gas in the sun's atmosphere, launching enormous blobs of charged particles known as coronal mass, mass ejections out into space. If a flaring sunspot happens to be facing Earth, then any resulting CMEs blast right toward us, typically reaching our planet in anywhere from 15 hours to several days. So it's not like you have a lot of time to prepare for something like this if it's heading our way. As electromagnetic energy from the sun pours into our magnetosphere, atoms and molecules in Earth's atmosphere become electrically charged, creating effects that can be seen around the world. During such storms, the aurora borealis, typically only seen near the North Pole, can shift down so far that it becomes visible near the equator. Radio and radar systems around the world can black out and electrical grids may become overloaded and lose power. Some experts fear that the significantly large CME could create an internet apocalypse by overloading undersea internet cables and leaving parts of the world without web access for weeks or months. Though this has not happened yet, satellites and space stations which orbit beyond the protection of Earth's atmosphere can also be debilitated by the renegade radiation of CMEs. Still, even the most powerful geomagnetic storm is in recorded history, the 1859 Carrington event, had no noticeable impact on the health of humans or other life on Earth. If even stronger solar storms battered our planet before this, there is no evidence that they impacted human health. Now, in this article, they're talking about the impact on health. Can it wipe out life on Earth? The answer to that is no, but that's not what my concern is. My concern is the technological advances that we have made being knocked offline for maybe possibly years. And that's why we really have to get um, our leaders to take notice of this and spend some money in hardening this grid and our satellites. That's something I feel very, very strongly about. I think we all should. Now, have you ever been out and about and someone comes up to you and say, hey, do I know you? Or, hey, you look like so-and-so. They mistake you for someone that they know. Well, you've heard, I'm sure, of the term doppelganger. I mean, I've heard that different times. Oh, you look like Jack or whatever. So this next story is a scientific twist on doppelgangers. This is interesting. Your doppelganger doesn't just look like you. They behave like you, too. Somewhere out there, there's probably a person who has your face. And this unrelated lookalike may have more in common with you than appearances. A new study suggests... The surprising research based on 32 pairs of unrelated doppelgangers from around the world shows that two people who have a strong facial similarity to each other are also likelier to share significantly more of their genes and be more likely to share similar behaviors. But the genes that get switched on or off and the microbial ecosystems in the two people's bodies still differ. These virtual twins have never met and were instead recruited thanks to the work of Canadian artist and photographer Francois Burel, who had been collecting pictures of lookalikes since 1999. The researchers published their findings August 23rd in, this, in the journal Cell Reports. Our study provides a rare insight into human likeness by showing that people with extreme lookalike faces share common genotypes. 
For the study, the 32 lookalike pairs completed a lifestyle and biometric questionnaire in their native languages, and the researchers used three different facial recognition algorithms to score the pairs' likenesses, of which half were considered doppelgangers by all three algorithms. Taking these 16 highly similar pairs, the researchers then investigated their genomic structure using DNA analysis. The analysis revealed that nine of the 16 pairs were ultra-lookalikes. They did not only appear closely related, they also shared 19,022 common genetic variations called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or NSPs, in 3,730 genes. However, these extreme lookalikes were no more likely to share similar epigenetics or microbiomes than pairs that did not look alike. Many of the lookalikes didn't just share some of their genetics either, but also had similar smoking habits, education levels, and weights. A reminder that behavior can be profoundly influenced by genes. These findings not only provide clues about the genetic settings associated with our facial aspect and probably other traits of our body and personality, but also highlight much of what we are and what defines us is really inherited or some or instead acquired during our lifetime, the authors wrote in a study. Perhaps the most fascinating of all is that these genetic similarities between unrelated doppelgangers occurred by random chance, implying that the combinations the human genome can take are far from infinite, especially on a planet that is fast approaching a population of 8 billion people. The researchers say that their findings could be used in fields such as evolution, biomedicine, and forensics. These results will have future implications in forensic medicine, reconstructing the criminal's face from DNA, and in genetic diagnosis. The photo of a patient's face will already give you clues as to which genome he or she has. Through collaborative efforts, the ultimate challenge would be to predict the human face structure based on genes and other factors. Now, when I saw this article from Life Science here, I really was shocked because you just think, well, it's just a, a game of chance that this person looks like me. But to think that we share genes with that person, and this is not a, a relative. Absolutely intriguing research there. This following news bit is something straight out of science fiction. I had to do a double take on this before I could believe it. This is from U.S. News & World Report. Scientists create synthetic mouse embryo with brain and a beating heart. Using only mouse stem cells, British researchers report that they have created synthetic embryos that form a brain, a beating heart, and other organs. The stem cells organized themselves until they developed beating hearts, and the foundations of the brain and yolk sacs were the embryo gets nutrients in its first weeks. Unlike other synthetic embryos, these stem cells reached a point where the whole brain began to develop. This is the most that has been achieved in any other stem cell mode, the scientists noted. The research could help in understanding why some embryos fail while others go on to develop into a healthy pregnancy, and it might also be used to guide the repair and development of synthetic human organs for transplant. Our mouse embryo model not only developed a brain, but also a beating heart, all of, its, all of the components that go on to make up the body, said researcher Magdalena Goatz, a professor in mammalian development and stem cell biology at the University of Cambridge in England. It's just unbelievable that we've got this far, she said in the university news release. This has been the dream of our community for years and a major focus of our work for a decade, and finally we've done it. For a human embryo to develop successfully, a dialogue is needed between the tissues that first that become the embryo and the tissues that connect the embryo to the mother. 
In the first weeks, three types of stem cells develop. One will become the tissues of the body, and the other two support the embryo's development. So many pregnancies fail around this time before most women realize they are pregnant. This period is the foundation for everything else that follows in the pregnancy. If it goes wrong, the pregnancy will fail. This period of human life is so mysterious, so to be able to see how it happens in a dish, to have access to these individual stem cells, to understand why so many pregnancies fail and how we might be able to prevent that from happening is quite special. If these methods are successful with human stem cells, they could also be used to guide the development of synthetic organs for patients awaiting transplants, the researcher said. There are so many people around the world who wait for years for organ transplants, said Goatz. What makes our work so exciting is that the knowledge coming out of it could be used to grow correct synthetic human organs to save lives that are currently lost. It should also be possible to affect and heal adult organs by using the knowledge we have on how they are made. Now, the report was published in the journal Nature. Now, just think about that for a minute. I'm sure so many of you, I know I have known some in my life, know people that are waiting organ transplants. And, you know, they don't just give organs from a donor to anyone. You have to fit a certain criteria. You have to be a certain age, health. So... If we can create synthetic organs for transplants, that would save, oh my goodness, so many people a year. Now, I had that story a month or two back when I talked about the gentleman that received the pig heart transplant. He was doing good for a while, and I think ultimately he passed away. But this is a game changer when it comes to organ transplants. This technology, this research, absolutely fascinating. Now, earlier this year, I talked about something that I really knew very little about before I did some research into it. I don't think I have had ever heard of it before. I did a show, I think it was around February of this year, on rogue planets. And these are planets that are propelled out of their orbit around their, their star, their host star, their sun, in their solar system. Somehow they get propelled away from that. Could be another celestial body that forces them out of that. So when I learned about these things, I mean, it's, it's pretty terrifying, to be honest. Now, of course, we have been here, the Earth is billions of years old. So, you know, the odds are very low that something like that could happen. A rogue planet could come into the solar system and terrorize it. And if you're interested in learning about what they are, you can check out the podcast, which is available on your favorite podcasting service. Just type in The S Factor Podcast. And my, all of my shows will pop up, or you can go to scienceanimated.net, my website, and you can listen to those episodes there as well. And one of the episodes is called Rogue Planets. Well, the reason I bring up Rogue Planets is because this next story is about the possibility of that happening to Earth one day. This is from Live Science. Could Earth ever leave our solar system? And how could it happen? Now, it's very unlikely, Matteo Suriotti an aerospace engineer and space systems engineering lecturer at the University of Glasgow in the UK told Live Science in an email. However, as Saratoti explained, unlikely does not mean it's impossible and suggested a way it could theoretically be done. The Earth could be moved away from its orbit through the action of a massive interstellar object, flying through interstellar space and coming into the solar system and passing close to the Earth, he said. In this encounter, known as a flyby, the Earth and the object would exchange energy and momentum, and the Earth's orbit would be disrupted. If the object were fast, massive, and close enough, it could project the Earth into an escape orbit 
directed outside of the solar system. Timothy Davis, a senior lecturer in physics and astronomy at Cardiff University in the UK, agreed that Earth could theoretically be ousted from the solar system and has his own hypothesis about how this could happen. The planets, as they exist right now, are in stable orbits around the Sun. However, if the Sun were to have a close encounter with another star, then the gravitational interactions of these bodies could disturb these orbits and potentially cause Earth to be ejected from the solar system, Davis told Live Science in an email. However, Davis noted that while this scenario is feasible, it is incredibly doubtful it will happen, at least in the foreseeable future. Such stellar encounters are quite rare, Davis said. For instance, we know that the star Gliese 710 is expected to come quite close, in astronomical terms, to the Sun in around a million years' time. But even this flyby is unlikely to perturb the planets. While it's improbable that external forces will force Earth out of the solar system anytime soon, could humanity build machinery if capable of shifting the planet to such a degree that it ends up being ejected? The energy required to remove the Earth from its orbit and eject it from the solar system is so massive, equivalent to sextillion, a 1 in 21 zeros after it, megaton nuclear bombs going off at once. That seems unlikely, Davis said. Even though such an event is far from probable, what would happen if the Earth were to break away from the solar system? What impacts would occur if our home planet ended up being permanently booted into the depths of the universe? Earth would fly into interstellar space until captured or swallowed by another star or a black hole, Siriotti said, adding that were Earth to leave the solar system, it would probably result in the decimation of much, if not all, of the planet's life. It's unlikely that the atmosphere would remain. Earth's global climate is very delicate due to a fine balance of radiation incoming from the sun and energy dissipated to deep space. If this was to vary, temperatures would immediately and dramatically change, Sariotti said. Now, Davis agreed that most life on Earth would not survive this cataclysmic move away from the solar system. If Earth were to leave the solar system, it is very likely that the vast majority of life as we know it would disappear. Almost all the energy used by Earth's living organisms originates from the sun, either directly, whether it's plants that photosynthesize, or indirectly, herbivores eating the plants and carnivores eating the herbivores. In this scenario, the further Earth moved away from the sun, the lower its temperature would become. It would eventually freeze over entirely. The only natural source of heat left would be the decay of radioactive elements in the Earth's crust left over from the formation of the solar system, Davis said. Now, Davis explained that some life may linger but would ultimately be doomed. Some extremophiles, that's animals and plants that live in extreme environments, might eke out a living from this energy, but complex life would likely disappear entirely. This radioactive heat would only allow the Earth to maintain a temperature of around minus 230 degrees Celsius, or minus 382 degrees Fahrenheit. At these temperatures, most of the atmosphere would also freeze out, leaving Earth as a dead, icy world hurtling between the stars, Davis said. Looking far into the future, Sariotti added that our solar system will eventually be disturbed so severely that Earth will either be knocked out of it or be destroyed entirely. We predict our galaxy is on a course to collide with Andromeda, which is our nearest neighboring galaxy, in approximately 4.5 billion years. 
Such a large-scale collision of millions of stars is likely to cause a major disruption in the solar system. It is also foreseen that the Sun, in the next 5 billion years or so, will enlarge and engulf the Earth. So while Earth will eventually leave the solar system one way or another, it's not something we'll have to worry about for a few billion years, probably. And that was from Live Science. Now, they did not talk about a rogue planet coming in. Thankfully, the odds are so incredibly low for something like this to occur, and we should thank our lucky stars for that. Now, how many of you would be okay with living forever, having immortality? Well, there is a creature on Earth that has that, and we're going to peer into why that is and how that is. Following from Vice, scientists analyze DNA of immortal jellyfish to find secrets to eternal life. T. Dornai is the only species that is biologically immortal. And now scientists have peered into its DNA to find out what lets it live forever. Death is a universal fact of life unless you're a jellyfish. As explained in a new study, the jellyfish T. Dorani is the only species able to rejuvenate repeatedly after sexual reproduction, becoming biologically immortal. And its DNA might hold the answer to the secret of eternal life. T. Dornai pulls off an amazing biological feat to cheat death. Every member of the species is an individual clone and starts life as a polyp that becomes a mature organism called a medusa. This isn't particularly unique, but what's amazing about T. Dormai is that if the medusa gets injured, sick or old, they don't throw in the towel. Instead, they become a cyst that turns back into a pulp and restarts the whole process, churning out more clones. While it might be a bit different from the idea of living forever in a vampire story, it is, strictly speaking, biological immortality. You can also call it, as scientists do, life cycle reversal. It would be like if a person got old and turned back into a fetus or a chicken into an egg. In a study published on Monday in the journal PNAS by researchers at the University of Ovidius in Spain, the authors describe how they compared the DNA of T. dormi to another closely related jellyfish species that is not immortal to determine what makes it special. Specifically, they compared genes involved in aging and DNA repair, together with the mRNA analysis of life cycle reversal, which has now provided new insights into the molecular mechanisms underlying the plasticity, which may contribute to the immortal phenotype of T. dormi they wrote in a study. Indeed, the researchers found several differences that they pinned as likely having an effect contributing to the jellyfish's immortality. Overall, these changes suggest that T. dormi may have more efficient replicative mechanisms and repair systems than other species, the authors write. For example, they found more copies of POLD1 and 2 genes, which encode different proteins in T. dormi than in its mortal relatives, which suggest enhanced replicative capabilities in the species. The species also had copies of genes governing DNA repair and those that govern telomerase, which are enzymes that re replenish the telomeres on DNA that shorten with age, and as a consequence to the enhanced cellular plasticity. It may indicate that telomerase activity could be enhanced or more finely regulated in the species. While this knowledge isn't going to let humans become biologically immortal like T. dormi, and even if it could, would we want it? It is an astounding jump forward in our understanding of age and how some species defeat it entirely. Now, what do you think about that? Would you want to have that capability to return to a fetus form and, and kind of start over again? So 
you didn't die. But here's the other question I have. If you did that with humans, would you remember the life that you just had? Probably not. So now you're kind of a completely different person because we are our memories. So very interesting there. And by the way, if you ever want to contact me, there are no phone calls on this show because it's pre-recorded. It's new, but it's pre-recorded. If you ever want to reach out to me, you can email me directly. Info at scienceanimated.net is the email address. That's info at scienceanimated.net. And of course, if you go to facebook.com scienceanimated, you can send me a direct message there as well. You can hit me up on YouTube, at Science Animated Education, TikTok, wherever you see my science animated content. Following from Scientific American, making computer chips act more like brain cells. The human brain is an amazing computing machine. Weighing only three pounds or so, it can process information a thousand times faster than the fastest supercomputer. Store a thousand times more information than a powerful laptop and do it all using no more energy than a 20-watt light bulb. Researchers are trying to replicate this success using soft, flexible, organic materials that can operate like biological neurons and someday might be able to interconnect with them. Eventually, soft neuromorphic computer chips could be implanted directly into the brain, allowing people to control an artificial arm or a computer monitor simply by thinking about it. Like real neurons, but unlike conventional computer chips, these new devices can send and receive both chemical and electrical signals. Your brain works with chemicals with neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. Our materials are able to interact electrochemically with them, says Alberto Cilio, a material scientist at Stanford University who wrote about the potential for organic neuromorphic devices in the 2021 Annual Review of Materials Research. Saleo and other researchers have credited electronic devices using these soft organic materials that can act like transistors, which amplify and switch electrical signals, and memory cells, which store information, and other basic electronic components. This work grows out of an increasing interest in the neuromorphic computer circuits that mimic how human neural connections or synapses work. These circuits, whether made of silicon, metal, or organic materials, work less like those in digital computers and more like the networks of neurons in a human brain. Conventional digital computers work one step at a time, and their architecture creates a fundamental division between calculation and memory. This division means that ones and zeros must be shuttled back and forth between locations on the computer processor, creating a bottleneck for speed and energy use. The brain does things differently. An individual neuron receives signals from many other neurons, and all these signals together add up to affect the electrical state of the receiving neuron. In effect, each neuron serves as both a calculating device, integrating the value of all the signals it has received, and a memory device storing the value of all those combined signals as an infinitely variable analog value, rather than the zero or one of digital computers. Researchers have developed a number of different memorizive devices that mimic this ability. When you run electric currents through them, you change the electrical resistance. Like biological neurons, these devices calculate by adding up the values of all the currents that they have been exposed to, and they remember through the resulting value the resistance takes. So the brain we have in us is so incredibly efficient 
at figuring things out. Our brain is capable of so many things, and it does all of those things with the power of a 20-watt light bulb. And here these researchers are trying to mimic that when it comes to computer circuits. So we're taking what has been evolved over millions of years and trying to apply that in our technological devices. We're trying to apply how the neurons work and how our brain functions instead of it being ones and zeros and everything's pretty much straightforward in a computing system and in a standard computing system. They're trying to mimic the very efficient human brain. Although once they do that, I'm sure those computers will be capable of much more. But it shows you how it shows you how sometimes we rely on nature to develop things for our future. And that'll do it for the show today. I want to thank you for joining me. If this was the first time joining me, I hope you enjoyed The Yes Factor. It's all about science here. The first Saturday of every month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Don't forget to check out my science animations for free at scienceanimated.net. If you'd like to support the show, there's ways of doing that. You can purchase Science Animated The Human Body, which is a 40-minute feature, which is nice for kids of any age. You can purchase that on the website, or if you're local in the Vineland area, you can go to Aubrey's Photo Quick on Main and Vine Road and pick up a copy there, or at the Quick Loop Station on Main Road in Vineland to get a copy of the DVD. Or you can buy the DVD online or stream it online as well. Check me out online at facebook.com slash scienceanimated, twitter.com slash scienceanimated, at scienceanimated on TikTok. And if you go to YouTube, go to the search field and type in the at symbol, science animated education. The at symbol, science animated education. Subscribe to the channel. Share the content. It's all free content. It doesn't cost you a thing to share it. And to like the page, it helps the channel grow. And it gets the word out. And if you're a teacher, homeschooler, or a parent, you're going to love this content. And I want to thank you very much for all the support you have given me. Until next time, be safe and stay curious. You have been listening to The S Factor, where it's all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. I'll see you next month with another brand new episode. Take care, everybody. (laughs) 